It's got to be on top of that, that outlet, though. That's the, just like that. Yeah, I know. All right. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Hiawatha Church. My name is Chris. I'm one of the pastors here. Thanks for coming today for uh, Braving the Storm. If uh, it's your first Sunday for all of you, um, well done. I don't know how bad it is out there now. I was, here at, I was here at 6.30 and it was not bad yet, but maybe it's not that bad. I don't know. Is it not that bad? <laughs> for Minnesotans, it's probably, it's probably tame, but uh, we've seen worse. We've seen worse. We've had church during worse, too. So uh, anyway, welcome to our, our um, church today, guys. We are Starting a series called What is the Church? Uh, it'll be a six-week series. Uh, Mark mentioned this, um, which will be a topical series for us. We are, if you're new to our church, we uh, highly value the Bible, though this will be kind of a, a way for us to, um, a lens by which we'll look at the scriptures. So uh, it'll be topical in that regard. You'll see what I mean here in a second if that's a, a new concept. But um, the question, though, is what is the church? We'll have six answers to this uh, here, which you'll, you'll see in a second. But first, um, a word on why we're doing this. Um, this is a broad sweeping generalization here, admittedly, but in general, American Christians have a weak ecclesiology. Ecclesiology just means theology of church. Um, that's, again, a broad sweeping generalization. Some don't, of course. Uh, we work hard at not having that here uh, in a, in a, as an individual, I would say this, but also um, leader, as leaders, we would say that as a church, but then as a whole church, we strive to not have a weak ecclesiology. With that said, though, we just kind of do. That's what we're born into. We are individualists, uh, which isn't always bad, uh, but as it pertains to church, it kind of is, and so uh, we have that going for us. On top of that, um, we tend to devalue symbolism and maybe separate the spiritual and physical too much to the point where we might value the invisible universal church and ourselves being the church, which are good things, but we might do that over and against the visible, physical, local church and almost kind of pit them against each other. And so church then sometimes devolves into more of an optional time for Christians to go and learn a little something rather than an extremely important non-optional rhythm for our lives that helps us persevere in the faith and serves as a way to hear from and connect with Jesus really more than anything else under the sun. Assuming we have open Bibles before us, which we always do here, uh, it, it doesn't always go without saying for churches, but, um, but that is true here. More on that a little bit later on. Where we are headed, though, here's the next six weeks. Uh, these are the six biblical answers we're giving. This is not an exhaustive look uh, by any stretch, uh, but uh, six, um, six biblical answers to what is the church. One, uh, it is the gathering of Christ. That's today. Uh, it is the sheep of Christ, the body of Christ, the army of Christ, the voice of Christ, and the bride of Christ. Uh, and so we'll get to those consecutively here these next several weeks together. Um, the goals uh, of this series, uh, e actually every week I should say, are kind of threefold. We're going to talk about the what, the why, uh, well, the what kind of on two levels, I'll explain this, uh, and then, the, and then the, uh, the how. So the what is more, what are these things exactly? We'll explain how the Bible talks about these things, what are they, what does the concept of the gathering of Christ even mean? Uh, so we'll look today at that biblically, theologically. Uh, second is kind of more of the what, but also kind of the why. So uh, why do we do things the way we do here? Or how does that find expression here as a church? So at Hiawatha, how do they find unique expression maybe? Uh, if there's something to say about that, we'll, we'll talk about that. And then the last piece is looking at the gospel in the doctrine of the church. And so how are these things good news? It's one thing to say, what are these things? That's teaching it's another thing to say, how are these things gospel? How are they good news? How do they preach Jesus crucified and raised to us, as all doctrines do or should? 
And so that'll be kind of the last, the last landing point for us each of these weeks. They all kind of blend. Some weeks we'll mishmash them all together. Some weeks there'll be kind of three distinct buckets, but just know those are, those are three um, goals we'll have every week talking about these six things thematically. So today is the gathering of Christ. Um, though linguistic definitions of church uh, vary uh, slightly, uh, ekklesia, which is the Greek word for church, means assembly or gathered ones or people with a common belief or community. So for Jesus to say, my church, which he does in the Bible, my church, he, he is the possessor of the church, the creator of the church, the one who purchases the church with his blood. For him to say, my church, is for him to say, my people, but with a particular bent towards my gathered people. My people who assemble in my name to hear from me. So have that in mind as we go today, and we'll see that flush out even more definitionally and also thematically as it pertains to the gospel itself. All right, so let's dive right in. Uh, we're going to look at a, a quick a kind of buggy ride through the Bible here uh, on a biblical theology of the theme of, really the word of, but the theme of gathering. So um, we'll look at, just kind of have this in mind as we go kind of quickly through this. There is a problem in the Bible at the very beginning. It has to do with like the idea of not gathering with God or being degathered from him. I'll talk about that in a second. But then the solution in the Bible is rolled out in a progressive manner that crescendos with Christ. So, so have that in mind. There's a problem in the Bible. The solution is rolled out throughout the Old Testament into the New that crescendos and progressively gets more expansive and, and cosmic and all-covering. And so when you have that in mind, when you, and we'll do this, we'll practice this now, but this is a very selective look. As you do that when you read the Bible uh, with any theme, note that, that God progressively reveals and crescendos with his Son. His Son fulfills everything that comes before it. And so have that in mind, and with the church as well. So we're, we're on topic today, we'll talk about the church the church and Christ kind of are what this theme ultimately gets to or crescendos to in the New Testament, all right? So uh, several things here. We'll start, and this will go pretty quick, but in Genesis 3.24, the very beginning of the Bible, it says God drove out the man and the woman from the Garden of Eden. And so we have this theme, right, this idea right at the beginning of the Bible that it's the first time humanity was separated from God because they disobeyed him, listened to the lie of the devil, and sought to replace him with ourselves. And so this idea of degathering is one of the first things we see in the Bible. After all things are made and they're, and they're perfect and euphoric, and, and we have this, this connection with God that is unstained, it becomes stained. And, and one of the manifestations of that right away is expulsion from God's presence or from the Garden of Eden and all humanity with them. Then in Genesis 12:1 it says the Lord said to this one man Abram, "Leave your father's house and go to the land I will show you." And so this is one of the first main instances where we see God start to gather people back to himself, specifically a land called Canaan, which starts to to make us think or we should start to think this when we see this theme happen. It happens many times after this as well. We'll see some of that today. But it should start to make us think maybe God is going to somehow bring people back. To, to a type of Eden. Maybe he's going to undo this Edenic uh, curse, which he eventually will. But we should start to kind of get our minds thinking on those levels, even 12 chapters in. But before that happens, there are subsequent banishments and exiles from this land, like famines that drove Jacob's family to Egypt, 
Naomi's family to Moab, and then even more importantly, larger scale sin rebellions against God that drove Israel as a whole nation to Babylon. And all of this further underscored the idea that sin was alive and well and continuing to keep people and God separate. Our, our sin, our wrongdoing in thought and body and deed and speech, when we hurt people and grieve God, when we sin against his laws and commandments, they, they serve to sever. They serve the purpose of exile and further expulsion. And the story of Israel is just that. They're a microcosm of the human experience. We should see ourselves in them as well, our ultimate narratives. Then we come to things like objects in the Old Testament, like the temple. They were central gathering points for the, for the people as well. So God does bring people back from famines to the land. He brings people back from exile. That's a big theme as well in the Old Testament. And there's a temple there too, which was a central gathering point. Again, key word for today, gathering point for the people to meet with God. And, and the temple, some of you know this, even had Eden-like attributes to it. The temple was supposed to look like Eden. It had Eden-like stones and uh, pictures and things like that on the curtains and on the, the, the architecture that would have made people think of Eden as they drew near to God in it or around it. Then reaching the end of the Old Testament or starting to in Ezra 10.9, we have things like this where it says, the people of Israel assembled after they came back from exile in Babylon. They assembled or gathered in heavy rain outdoors, shivering to hear Ezra preach the word of God. It's a really cool image. And so we start to see that this is, again, where we, we talked about crescendo before. This is what we're starting to see happen here is a crescendo, not just bringing people back to land, but bringing people back to God to hear him speak. So gathering people around the preached, proclaimed word. That starts to happen and before this as well, but in a heightened way when Israel comes back from exile in Babylon. People gather around the preached word uh, and, and they return to that, not just to Canaan or to this, uh, this physical land. Which then leads us to this last part of the Old Testament. Uh, some of you are aware the last part of our Old Testaments are the prophets. And when they start to speak, they uh, crescendo this idea even further. So when the prophets come, they start to speak uh, of a, a greater scope to the idea of in-gathering. So the scope of gathering increases to include people from all nations now, from the four corners of the earth. And, and we see again, as in Ezra, that the return has less to do with geographical real estate and more about returning to God from our sins. So Isaiah 11 says, uh, talks about the idea of, of the four corners. So God promises an in-gathering of his people from the four corners of the earth, not just Babylon, so it's more cosmic. Again, it's heightened. And then Isaiah 44 says, God speaking again, I've blotted out your sins, so return not to the land, but to me. And it's implied in the land, of course, but that the language changes in the prophets. It's not just about the land anymore. It's, it's, the land is a, a secondary idea when we get to the prophets. It is fading. But what's coming more into the forefront is the idea of returning people to God. No more exile, no more separation. So people can hear from me and see my face and, and we can be, have this new Edenic or Eden-like reality again. That's how the prophets talk. And this is a couple of small examples uh, here for today's purposes. So then, when we get to Jesus, when he finally comes on the scene, he fulfills 
everything we've just been talking about. And it should be no surprise then that we see gather language applied to Jesus. Just like we saw in the Old Testament in the types and the foreshadowings and the predictors in the process of crescendoing this theme, it should not shock us to see that Jesus is a gatherer of sinners, a gatherer of dead people, a gatherer of prostitutes and lepers and people that are far out castaways from God. It's exactly what we see. One instance physically in Luke 5 is when Luke says, now even more the report about him uh, went abroad and great crowds gathered, gathered to hear him. So they listened to him, but also they gathered to be healed of their sicknesses. And then in Ephesians, 12, or Ephesians 2, uh, again, crescendoing, because the Gospels themselves do, it, it, it again should not be a surprise that his death ends up being the means by which people are truly gathered once and for all. This is where this theme has, its, it, it makes this beeline. Uh, in and out throughout the whole of the storyline is his death is the ultimate ingathering. His death is truly once and for all what brings sinners back to, to God. In fact, um, in the gospel accounts, Jesus is uh, at his death and resurrection is, is linked with being like Adam. He's linked with being a gardener. He's confused for being a gardener after his resurrection, which is what Adam was in the very beginning. Uh, he's laid in a garden tomb when he dies. And, and all of that in, in John is to suggest that it's possible now, because of what Jesus did, because he was crucified and buried in that tomb, because he rose again, it's possible to get back. It's possible to see the face of God now and to be erased of our sin and exonerated forever and ever and ever. So you have statements like this in Ephesians 2. You who were once far off have been gathered or brought near by the blood of Christ. All right? Okay, here's the thing though. This is the most important part of everything I've said so far this morning. But it's not over. This is not the last part of it. The story goes on. This is the most important part, but it's not the last word. There's one more piece, and, and here it is. In light of this gospel reality, Christians physically gather with one another on a weekly, sometimes more, basis. The church has historically, starting with the Bible, gathered on the first day of the week in commemoration of Jesus' resurrection. In Acts 2 as well, it says quite simply in verse 44, all who believed were together. Uh, etymologically, that word together comes from the word gather. It's the same word. They gathered. They got together. They listened to the apostles' teaching. They ate together. They sang songs of worship and shared their stuff with each other. They worshiped together. They had life together. Which is really interesting that it, it, it doesn't say here that, and this is maybe the way that you know, American Christians might be tempted to think sometimes, and we do, but it, it doesn't say all who believed were together initially, but then went their own separate ways and lived private spiritual lives until they died. It doesn't say that, right? Not even close. Never even insinuates it. Uh, Christianity in our, our lives as Christians is deeply personal, but it's not private. There's nothing that suggests privacy about our faith, though we try very hard to make it this. And, but we, we need to strive to not do that. This is not the pattern. Personal in that Jesus personally 
calls us by name from our tombs, and it's personal that it means something personally to us, but it's not private. We also see language all over the New Testament when Paul says that he just assumes Christians are gathering. When he says, when you come together, Christians, and then he writes to them how that should look. He just assumes it because it was happening. It was, it was never not happening in the first century. So when you come together, do this, or say this, or eat this way, or use the gospel to, to solve your relational conflict or something like that. 1 Corinthians is full of these statements, though, when you come together. And then also in Matthew 18, Jesus speaks in this, right? When he says, where two or three Christians are, there's the word, gathered, when they come together or gathered in my name, that's when I'm among them. See, it's, it's the physical proximity of Christians that creates this mystical space for Jesus to exist there. That's where he is. Gathering is not optional. It's not optional. It's not the bullseye of the Christian faith. The previous slide here was. Jesus gathering sinners through his blood is, is the bullseye. This, though, is not an optional thing because of how closely it relates to it. And that's where things get kind of controversial sometimes or simply missed by many Christians. Christians who may have a just me and Jesus kind of theology. And, and that is how the Bible portrays believers gathering together like this is related to all the deep theology that came before it that we just talked about today or got a sampling of. Our gathering right here today, right now, is related to Jesus gathering us away from hell to himself. They do relate. They necessarily go together. This is something we say to our people becoming members here um, in our kind of final step in that process. I'll share it with you guys uh, here. Some of you have heard this, though. Um, Gathering physically with other Christians is a symbol of our conversion narratives. So this is what we say. Leaving our homes on Sunday mornings, which represents our old lives, and moving to and gathering with other Christians, but to a place where Christians are, which is where Jesus is, where the gospel's preached and where the Spirit's moving and communion's present, that is like, that's a symbol of what happened when we converted, right? We, we, we moved spiritually. We, we were gathered from an old place of sin and brought into the family of God. God did that. So every Sunday, we image that with our physical bodies when we come here. It's a reminder that we belong to someone else now, uh, that we've been called from our tombs, that we don't have to control our lives anymore. It's actually a lot, of, a lot of gospel in that idea, a lot of freedom. We don't have to control our lives anymore. Someone else has dictated my future. And the idea that a church is here that I... I I'm just a part of, but I'm not, I don't call the shots. And, and I would say that too about myself. Like it's not, I'm just saying like all of us, we're part of something bigger than ourselves, whether we're a leader or not in the church. But to say, I don't, the, the schedule set. I don't have to control my lives. I, I come to a church that has a schedule set and it dictates part of my life. Just like the gospel dictates, God dictates my life now. I don't have to call all the shots. This is also why prioritizing Sundays is so important. 
And I say this on a Sunday where there's a big snowstorm and people can't be here. So I, I, I realize the irony. Uh, but still, you guys should feel very good about yourselves today. No, um, that's not true. That's workspace theology. We're grace-based here. Yeah. Um, but with that said, this is why prioritizing Sundays is so important because to not gather with the church regularly is to say with our actions, we have not been gathered to Jesus. Do you understand? For, for, um, for American Christians who are very modernistic and don't think symbolically, this is, what I just said is ridiculous. But we have to bend the knee to what the, how the Bible talks, not to the way that we philosophically approach reality. To not gather with the church physically is to say with our actions, though we might not say with our minds, but with our actions, that we have not been gathered to Jesus by his blood. It just does. In fact, look at what 1 John 2.19 says. The apostates, the false believers, this is John speaking to the church. False believers went out from us, but they didn't really belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us. But their going showed that none of them belonged to us. Isn't that interesting? What he's saying is that people who looked Christian but really weren't didn't stay in church. They, they didn't um, stay in the space of uh, gathering with Christians. They didn't keep doing that. It's fascinating that John doesn't say here what made someone an apostate was that they stopped believing the gospel. Though obviously that was true. That's a part of this, but he doesn't say that. He says, what showed the people weren't Christians was they left the church. They went out. They stopped gathering physically. They stopped gathering with the church, which is where Jesus is. They, they symbolically left Jesus by leaving his people. And, and this is why we see this happen. Uh, sadly, grievously, is that people every day... Um, I'm speaking big picture here, but I'll, well, I'll, I'll just say this. We've seen this happen here. Not every day, but we've seen this happen here. This, ha- this has happened. That people who we've seen leave Christianity, and we thought they were Christians, but we've seen people leave Christianity, they went out from us, and they didn't just like go down the street to a different church. That'd be a different story. We're, what, we're, what, we're, what we're saying is they've completely left the church, and... They left the practice of gathering with the church as they were leaving Christ. Both those things happened simultaneously. Sometimes it's more leaving the church first, then leaving Christ comes second. It's kind of the outflow of that. Sometimes they're kind of concurrent. But maybe you guys have seen this um, yourselves. You probably will someday, but, but look for this pattern. This is what 1 John 2 is getting at. So, yes, gathering with Christians is a symbol of the gospel, that, that doesn't make it optional. It's sort of like communion. Like We would not say as Christians that, well, I have symbolically, I've spiritually already eaten the body and blood of Jesus. I already did that when I believed the gospel the first day, so I'm not going to eat this wine and bread. I'm not going to do that anymore. We'd never say that, right? Or you shouldn't. Jesus says, do this until I come back. Do this in remembrance of me. We never say about communion. We should also not say that about church and just say, well, I've already spiritually been gathered back to God through my faith in him, so I don't need the physical church. 
It's, see, it, it, it's the same sort of illogical fallacy. It's the same sort of illogical way of thinking theologically. It's illogical that there's no space for this biblically and in like our practice as Christians. All right, so that's the first piece here. I'll come back to some of this. I want to shift gears a little bit here and talk about what do we do when we come together. Um, This says lots of things, uh, but primarily we listen, sing, and eat. We are saved and built up by the preached word. We're nourished and reminded by the bread and wine and are made content and happy by the gospel songs. All right, so there's a lot to talk about here. If you're interested in, in, in questions like, why does Hiawatha preach the way they do? Or why do they sing the songs that they do and not other songs that I like or whatever? Or um, why do they do communion the way that they do? Those are great questions. Um, we spend like an hour and a half on those questions in our intro to Hiawatha class. So there is absolutely no time for that <laughs> this morning. Uh, but if you want to talk after the service or come to our intro class in April, I think it's April 11, we'll talk more expansively about that there. But I still want to say this. This is what we primarily do, though we could say we do other things too. We primarily listen to sermons, we sing songs, and we eat communion. And primarily in all these things, we hear from God. We, we sit under preaching. Uh, Jeremiah 10.5 says, um, God speaking through Jeremiah, this is really interesting. Idols, or think like other gods or other religions, are like scarecrows in a field. They cannot speak. Do not be afraid of them, for they cannot do evil, neither is it in them to do good. All right? Implication here is our God can speak, and he actually does. Hebrews 1 affirms this. Uh, God has spoken in many and various ways, In these last days, though, he has honed in and spoken through his son. He is primarily to say, Jesus is my word. Jesus is what I have to say to the world. His death and resurrection is what I'm saying all the time. That's the final word, and he says it on repeat every day. Every word really in the Bible is about that, but the ones that came before that were preparatory for it. But now that it's here, that's the final word. This is from Hebrews 1, 1 to 4. All right? But if this is true, what an amazing truth this is, right? And apply this to preaching. And this can apply other, other like settings as well, like a teaching, or this can apply to like reading the Bible audibly with another Christian in a coffee shop or a living room, for sure, because this applies more most to, like, to the Bible, the written words of Scripture. But the act of preaching, I mean, what if we really believe that this is, this is what was happening, that God was actually speaking during this time? What if we believe that preaching was not just a spiritual TED talk or an opportunity to learn a fact or two that we can tuck away in our brains, but a time when God, God, the one who actually knows what's best for us and who loves us more than any other being in the universe, actually speaks grace to us, actually reveals mysteries to us, and actually warns us in love like a good dad to his kids against falling away. What if that was actually true? This all assumes, of course, we're actually preaching the gospel and teaching the Bible, not just sharing anecdotal stories or moralistic lessons or our ideas, but preaching God's words from the Bible is actually his audible voice coming out to us as a church to build us up and to console us and nourish us. 
And, and this, by the way, uh, a little bit of a spinoff here, but this is where our understanding of the gospel relates so closely to our theology of church. And what I mean is, if we're moralists only, like, if we, if we believe that Jesus was just a moral teacher, that's all he ultimately was, then, think, follow this logically here now. What does that mean? It's going to mean that we're ultimately just about information. And if we're just about information, we would just podcast sermons from home. Why would we come here in a snowstorm? We podcast from home. We podcast our favorite preacher from California or from the UK or something. And we'd learn facts and things and collect those facts and things and then try to apply them to our lives and and then go and so live. But that's not the gospel. The gospel's not Jesus as teacher. The gospel's Jesus as savior, as gatherer, right? And if he's a, a God who has gathered us away from our sin... And the gospel is not just information, but a type of ingathering reality for lost people, then we have to come here. Our theology of the gospel dictates it. It's symbolized in it. It makes sense as to why we'd be here rather than just reading a book from home. Something happens when we gather, something mystical, something mysterious, something spiritual. And preaching is not just TED Talks, it is the voice of God calling out, I love you so much, I was willing to give my one and only son for you every single week and we need it like daily bread because we get hungry. Gathering to God and gathering with his people. Uh, you know, to, to not gather is to say, I'm fine on my own. To not gather is to say, I don't need others, which is close to saying I don't need God. To not gather is, is to say, I can understand enough about God on my own, which is to say, I can save myself. And that is the antithesis, the opposite of the gospel. All right, this, this last piece here is, um, how is the idea of ga- the gathering of Christ good news? And, I, and I've already, in a lot of ways, you've been talking about this. Um, the idea, just for clarity, is, we have been gathered, and, and let, me, let me use that word in its kind of um, its etymological or its kind of definitional sense, which is we have been gathered, we have been churched to God. We have been assembled, we have been churched to him, gathered to him through the blood of Jesus Christ. All right, that's what we've already been saying. But, but here's the, the other layer. There's another important layer to this that has to do more with our affections. This came up in our Philemon series, if you were here for this the last three weeks or so. We saw this come out in that genre as well. The Bible's not shy about this. That's to put this lightly. It's not shy. It really, God really wants us to know about what this extra layer is. To see it, let's read this, uh, these few little parables that Jesus gives in Matthew 13. Jesus says, The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. Okay, here's here's the question. 
What does this mean? What does this mean? Now, on one level, we might, this might describe what it's like for a person to find the gospel, to find the truth that there is in Jesus died for me. You know, that, that is, we might be like the man, right, in verse 44. The gospel truly is the most valuable thing on earth. We, we, could, say, we could see it that way. And it's worth dying to ourselves for, maybe, or it's worth spending figuratively for. And yet, when we really think about it, what makes the gospel so valuable is precisely that it's not about us. And so when we read all of these little parables together, especially the last one, which talks about gathering, and when we apply other similar passages, like the parable of the lost sheep or the lost coin in Luke 15, if you've read those before, Matthew 13 here has less to do with us finding Jesus and more with him finding and gathering us. That's what it's about. That's what the kingdom of God is about. I mean, isn't that what we've seen all throughout today with the theme of gathering? When we went all the way throughout the scriptures and when we talked about it symbolically and we talked about the gospel itself, Ephesians 2, isn't that what the whole Bible has been about? Doesn't Jesus say to his disciples, you'll be fishers of men? What does that make us? Fish. Right? We're not the fishermen. Jesus is, ultimately. And if we ever are a fisherman, it's him and us. But with this parable in mind, he's the merchant, he's the guy finding the treasure, he's the fisherman, he's the net. We are the passive, caught, found, covered, embraced, gathered ones. That's who we are. So that this means then Jesus is, is that man who finds the treasure. We're that treasure. He's like the merchant who sells all that he has and buys that field so he can acquire us. Isn't that much better news, by the way? It means we're lost. It means we're hidden, which should sound a lot like Genesis 3 when Adam hid himself from God. Remember that? After he sinned, we're hidden, like the hidden things here in this passage. We're hidden. We're inanimate. It means we're cast into the heart of the sea like a pearl or a fish far from God. But then, it means that Jesus searched for us, found us, and covered us, as in covered our shame and guilt and nakedness and purchased us with his blood and gathered us into his boat, not unlike the animals were gathered two by two into Noah's ark. Okay, and here's the kicker. It also means he did all of this, second line, in his what? Joy. Yes. In his joy, he did this. You see, this is not about our joy in finding Jesus, though it's not always untrue to, to frame it that way. It's better news. This, this passage, Jesus has better news for us than that. Jesus is saying, I have joy. In my joy, I went to find you. And in my joy, when I did find you. This is what Luke 15 says too, is the angels have the joy when the sheep is found or when the coin is found, right? They are messengers of God, representatives of him in that passage. This is what the scriptures teach. So this means, all of you who are Christians today, there is a deeper reality to why you're a Christian. And that is, 
Jesus came into the world to make it possible for you to become a Christian. Jesus came into the world to find you. I mean, if this is true, then you've been found by your Creator. You are a Christian and I am a Christian because Jesus wanted us to be. Gathering, then, is good news because we can't gather ourselves to God, right? Nor can anybody gather God. That actually starts to get kind of like some, some really harmful theological ideas can kind of come from that. But no one can gather God or collect him. No one can gather God to himself. That's not the, haven't we seen that today? I hope that's been clear. That the whole story of the Bible is God getting off of his throne, coming into the world, becoming human, taking on our infirmities and sicknesses and sins and pains and sorrows and exile, taking all of it on himself and in and through that, coming to get us and claim us. But what this is saying is, you and I, if you're a Christian today, if you're not, you can, this is your story too if you believed in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. But Christians, you and I have been gathered at the highest of costs. This guy spent everything he had to get that treasure. Well, guess what? Jesus spent everything he had to get you. Everything. I mean, how could we, how could we add to that? How could you add something to that? There's nothing we can do to add to that, right? Nothing. Let's not fool ourselves, or worse than that, sin outright, and spit in the face of God's gracious offer of himself by saying, yeah, that's great, but I have a lot to add to that myself. Check it out. And then we kind of open up our trophy case. We receive. We are inanimate pearls. We are inanimate treasures. We just sit there. We are inanimate Lazaruses dead in the tomb until Jesus walks by that tomb and calls in and says, Lazarus, come out. And so to go back to this then uh, and to start to wrap this up, I want to back up and then come back to this. But um, when we think about gathering then, uh, here's just three things uh, that that I'll leave with you. And I'm I'm summarizing this here. I'll, I'll expand on this. But if gathering is, if this is all true, like if, if gathering really is this important, if it's part of one of the threads that holds the Bible together, if it is a core gospel idea and God doesn't separate the physical and spiritual as much as we tend to do, if all that's true, and it is, then one, do everything you can to be here on Sundays. Even if it means canceling plans that can be canceled or postponing things. Prepare your heart and your family's hearts to hear from God. A great thing to do is is to pray in preparation for this and say, God, speak to me. I want to hear from you through your people. You know, and so uh, if if you come and and part of this is a, um, well, I'll, I'll get to the third thing in a second, but that's the first thing. Second thing is, and when you walk into this building, think, just like I didn't need to perform enough good in order to walk into this space physically, so does God not require any good of me whatsoever. That's not, that's not the gospel. There's no requirement. There's no condition. But 
only to come to him as a needy sinner and to buy without money, as the Bible says, without money. The only way you can, get, you can buy salvation is to not have money. If you come with money, you won't get it. If you come spending, if you come with something you've done, you will not be saved. You will not be saved forever. That, that, that is so crucial to understand. It's only without money. In fact, we would say we can't do good, right? Because we are an inanimate pearl. We are a scarecrow. We're scarecrows. We are not a living, breathing, good person. We need a Savior to make us alive and to come gather us. Coming to church physically should remind you guys of these things. This is what I want, what I want for me and you guys, is to start to think this way physically. When you walk into this space, there's an opportunity for you to think about those things, just like there is when you physically eat this bread, to think about Jesus' body. There is not a disconnect. And you can't get that with a podcast at home. You just can't. In fact, you get the opposite. We must gather just like we have been gathered to God through his son. And then third, uh, listen to sermons as though God is speaking. This would be my third point of encouragement. Listen to sermons as though God is speaking, not just sharing information. How, how, think when you're listening, how is God calling out to me now to reveal mysteries? How is he making difficult passages clear with his son, with Jesus in mind? How is he consoling me with his love? How is he warning me against falling away in love? And, and when we do that, remember that God is a God who gathers us in order to speak to us. Ezra was a great picture of this. Obviously, the New Testament's a more explicit picture. God gathers people sometimes in shivering rain, but it's so valuable that he gathers us anyway in order to hear his voice. God is not mute. And we know this because of the cross. We know this because of Jesus. Jesus is called the Word, right, in the Bible. God is speaking. We can listen or not. But always remember that. God is a God who gathers us not just to get together and laugh and, and you know, play Scrabble, but in order to speak. Scrabble's great but in order to speak to us. And God's ultimate word is Jesus. And Jesus' ultimate word, I mean, really, in a word, it is what we saw in Matthew 13. It is, in my joy, I spent it all to save you. I spent it all to seek you, to find you, and to save you. I have gathered you from the four corners of the earth, from the sea of judgment, indeed, from hell itself by my blood. And I'll ask you again, what else do you guys think you can add to that? There's nothing. He's gone to the, the outer reaches. He's spent everything. His last breath, his, his God spent everything by giving his one and only beloved son. Jesus spent everything by spending his last breath. There, there's, there is no other gospel other than this. Don't add to it. Don't subtract from it. But this is what we need, like daily bread, like oxygen, because we forget, because we start to suffocate, because we wander. And, and the gathered church is the primary place we get it. Not that there aren't glimpses elsewhere or anything, but the gathered church is where we hear this, ultimately we sing about it, we're made glad in it, we remember it through communion, and 
and we hear it audibly through, uh, through preaching. So with that, let me, let me uh, pray for us, and we'll, we'll close a couple of songs here. God, thank you so much uh, for your grace. Thanks for the church. Thanks for our church. Uh, in our 13 years, you've been so good to us. It is clear that you wanted us to exist. Um, all the circumstances that went into starting this church, I really can't pray through that right now, but it's just crazy how much you did and you are doing. So thank you, God, for breathing Hiawatha Church into existence. Uh, thank you for all the people who call it home. Thank you for coming to find me when I was an obstinate, dead, full of myself sinner. Thank you for that, for doing that for everyone here as well who's a Christian. Um, and thank you, God, that your gospel really is just so sweet and so powerful and so sufficient. Um, thank you that in your joy you covered our shame, you covered our guilt. Thank you for the prophecies. Thank you for the types in the Old Testament. Thank you for the word pictures. But thank you for the reality that by the blood of Jesus we have been gathered back unto God. By the blood of Jesus, those who are far off have been brought near. God, help our church experience uh, to really image that, to see it in symbolic form, to experience, to kind of taste that doctrine, to taste that theology, uh, maybe more than we were formerly kind of preconditioned to. So, but in any case, God, thank you so much for your grace, saving us by your grace and not by our works. In Jesus' name, amen.